Hello, fellow data nerds. We're going to try a different format for the podcast today. From time to time, I appear on other podcasts to chat about data, startups, and venture capital. I thought it'd be interesting to share some of these conversations with our World of DAS community. In this episode, my conversation is with Daliana Liu, host of the Data Science Show. You can find more information about Daliana at the Data Science Show in the notes. Let's dive in. Sometimes you have to make some sort of prediction of the truth. You know, we, we like to say we, at SafeGraph, we predict the past. Um, mm -hmm. We're actually predicting the truth because you don't always know you have holes in the data. Hello, everyone. Welcome to the Data Scientist Show. Today, we have Oren Hoffman. Oren is the CEO of SafeGraph, the place for data about physical places. He is the former co-founder and CEO of LiveRamp, the largest middleware company that connects marketing applications. Previously, Oren served on the board of Brightroll, acquired by Yahoo, was chairman of Stonebricks Group, CEO of BridgePath, and CTO of Kyber Systems. That's quite a journey, probably the longest intro I've ever read. And it's not over yet. Oren is an angel investor in over 120 tech companies. He holds a BSE in industrial engineering and operations research from UC Berkeley. He is the creator of DAS Bible. DAS means data as a service and host of World of DAS, a podcast for data enthusiasts where he talks to business and tech thought leaders about all things data. He is also very active on Twitter at A-U-R-E-N-Oren. Welcome to the show, Oren. Thank you so much. Happy to be here. On your LinkedIn profile, you said you were a math nerd. Uh, can you give us an overview of your career journey, especially what was the transition like from being a math nerd to engineer and later founder and CEO? Well, yeah, I'm just always very interested in things like math puzzles and things like that. And in high school and college, I was particularly interested in, in any type of like math puzzle or any type of probability analysis or, or so that kind of gravitated me to data. Um, and so thinking about data was always, uh, it's always fun and challenging and, um, and enjoyable. Mm -hmm. And what made you want to build a safe graph? Well, SafeGraph is a data company, so we sell. We we only sell data. We don't do anything else. So we sell facts. Uh, so it's it's pretty rare to build a company that just sells facts. Most companies maybe are, are around data, or they have some sort of data at their core, but they're selling some sort of core service or an application on top of those facts to help people make decisions. At SafeGraph, we only sell facts. So that's it. We we literally sell facts. In SafeGraph's case, we sell facts about uh, physical places. So if you want to know about like the local McDonald's on 555 Main Street, you come to SafeGraph and we give you the data about that. And so the um, it's not that many people can use facts. So most of our customers are core data science teams or machine learning teams, maybe a core engineering team or a core product team. Uh, th those are the types of people that can actually take facts in and make them useful. But the vast majority of business users need some sort of application. They can't just buy facts. Mm-hmm. Yeah, thanks for sharing that. And also you, in your profile, you said you're chief historian. What does that mean? Well, data is really, really about history. So it was really about what happened in the past, not, not what happened in the future. 
So, uh, and ideally, the most important thing with data, as as with any type of fact uh, about you know, fact is something that happened is, is something that's true, and data is the same thing. So, ideally, the veracity of your data is really important. And most you know, data companies they have billions and billions of facts that can't be a hundred percent true. Like that's impossible. But you want to be as close to a hundred percent as possible, especially when you're selling to data science teams, because what data science teams do is they take your facts. And they're putting it in some sort of data science model. And if your facts are wrong, then the the errors are going to compound really, really fast in the model. So you know, if you start timesing 0.9 against each other a lot of times, you're going to get to a really small number really, really, really quickly. Um, and a lot of data is not even 90% true. A lot of data companies out there are like 40 to 50% accurate. And 40 to 50% accurate is actually fine if you're uh, selling to an individual. Because an individual, let's say you're selling to a real estate broker or something like that, an individual can disambiguate the facts pretty quickly and they can kind of understand what to trust and what not to trust, et cetera. So imagine like if you're looking at uh, restaurant reviews on the web, right? You you have some sort of understanding of what's good, what isn't good, et cetera. You, you can disambiguate that pretty easily as, a, as an individual. Uh, but if you're actually putting that into a model, then you really need to be much, much more true. Um, if you're putting that into a model, because now it's not a, a no one's looking at that data. That data is informing some sort of core decision. Let's say you're making a lending decision or something like that off of the data. Then you really want those facts to be true. Mm-hmm. Yeah, thanks for sharing that. And as a data scientist, I know that it's very hard to have a, like a hundred percent accuracy for the truth of data, like you mentioned. Um, and uh, you, I read your. Uh, Das Bible. So you talked about accuracy versus coverage. So when you um, try to validate your data, how do you know when is good enough? When is accurate enough? Well, I mean, it is a never-ending thing, and data can be good. Certain levels of accuracy could be good for different use cases. And different use cases are going to require different levels of accuracy, and then also certain levels of coverage are going to be diff- good for uh, you know uh, good for different types of use cases and sometimes there it's it's an inverse relationship with one another so sometimes you need more coverage and lower accuracy sometimes you need higher accuracy and lower coverage sometimes you need both so um, so it really depends on what you're going what you're going after and so depending on your product you might go after different types of markets so when safegraph started we were extremely high accuracy but pretty low coverage so we went after a certain niche markets that could um, that could benefit from that, and then over time we got better and better and better coverage. But we didn't want to compromise on the accuracy, so we we decided we were going to be the the super high accuracy solution, and maybe we're going to trade off a little bit on coverage over time. But of course, you you always get more. You can have more coverage over time if you just if you work on that. That's just something you have to put a lot of effort into into getting more coverage. Uh, other other companies in our space maybe have erred much more toward, okay, we're going to do a much, much more higher coverage, but maybe we're more willing to have lower accuracy. Mm-hmm. So everyone has a different kind of go-to-market motion. Yeah. Um, so it looks like it's case by case. And uh, can you give us some example? What are some cases where you definitely need high accuracy, but it's okay to have low coverage? Well, um, any case where you're like really informing a very, very core decision um, and you're building a lot of different dependencies on that data, then a higher accuracy is going to be more important. 
So I think like things like if if you were making a lending decision or a buying decision on a, or if you're putting a lot of money uh, to to on a, on a particular thing, I think you're gonna you're gonna want a very very much higher accuracy. You know, for instance, a, a simple use case that you use SafeGraph data for is where should I put my next store? And that's often like a multi-million dollar decision. Mm-hmm. And so you want to have pretty high accuracy to make that happen. Um, where you want maybe a little bit where it's okay to have a little lower decision, maybe like a marketing decision. So marketing might be uh, where should we spend some marketing dollars or something? And um, and data is probably only a small portion of what goes into marketing. A lot of marketing is also about like the message that you have and a whole bunch of other stuff. And um and so, you know, if you're if you're targeting, let's say you're targeting gender on the internet or something like that, it's pretty rare to find a, a gender provider that's better than seventy percent accurate. So let's say it's fifty percent better than throwing darts or something. Mm-hmm. Um, and that that's good. You know, that works that works pretty well on the internet. Um, in most other fields, on in most other fields, you're going to target on. Let's say you target on like age or income or something. You're going to be, you know, roughly. 10, 20% accurate or something that's still more accurate than throwing darts usually. Um, and that will probably work fine if you're just kind of like spreading some sort of marketing message where the cost of being wrong is mm-hmm. just is just showing someone a little bit of a wasteful ad or something, but but the, there's not that many costs beyond that being wrong. Yeah. Um, and uh, what is the process for you to fact-check data? Yeah, well, the it's certain facts are easier to check than others, um, and so uh, so if if we have a a data, uh, so you know the classic data that might be very very simple that SafeGraph has will be the store hours of the local McDonald's. Mm-hmm. So this particular McDonald's on five 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 Main Street um, opens at seven a.m. on Tuesday. This other McDonald's at four fifty four First Avenue um, opens at six a.m. on Thursday or something like yeah. that, right? And that is something that is like fact checkable, right? So mm-hmm. uh, now it's hard to check if you have billions of data points, you can't check all of those data points, but you can take a few thousand and check them and see how well you're doing against that. So you can actually have humans check. You can see how well you're doing. You can see, okay, in, you know, on store hours, we're doing really, really well, but on another attribute, uh, maybe we're not doing so well and we need to get better at, or we do really well for restaurants, but we do really poorly for big box retailers or, you know, so you, you can have different and then, okay, well, what, why, why is that happening? And you can start to go into your algorithms to try to figure out why it's happening in particular areas. So you want to have, you want to basically be grading your facts all the time and we are grading them both ourselves. So we have a whole system where we grade our facts and then we check how well we're doing all the time. And then we also have customers that grade them. So we have a lot of customers that are giving us feedback all the time about how we're doing. And um, our customers are very loud when we're wrong. And of course, (laughs) if you have billions of facts, you're going to be wrong all the time. And so then we take that data in and then hopefully it gets better and better and better over time. Um, And one of the nice things is, is when you, when you correct a fact for, especially when you're, when you're building these things programmatically, when you correct one particular fact, it could potentially update ten thousand um, other things, or you know. So, so these are these are living algorithms that, uh, as as you get feedback, make everything a little bit better. Mm-hmm. So, uh, it's a combination of uh, human fact checkers, and uh, you have algorithm to detect whether there's any outliers, and you also take feedback from your customers. 
Yeah, you need to do everything. Um, so it's a, it's a never, and you, and you should never stop because the thing about facts is that they change. Mm. Um, so, you know, th- there are certain things about, like, if you think of a fact about an individual, there's certain thing about an individual, like, you know, the, the date you were born on that doesn't change or something, but mm-hmm. so many other things about you change. If you think of like marital status can change multiple times in your life, or, you know, did you have kids? You do not have kids or your income changes all the time or, you know, and, and the same thing in our case, we have data about places, physical places. So even if your store hours were right before it was open at 7am on Thursdays in the future, that could change. And in COVID things like store hours were changing every single day. Um, and in, even no, in normal times, store hours actually change a lot more than people think. Um, mm-hmm. Even places themselves change. So, you know, if, if you think of a person, an average person, you know, might live over 80 years or something like that. Uh, so it lives a pretty long time. The yeah. average place, like the average restaurant or something like that, you know, is about nine years in the United States. So you're just going to have a, a pretty high turnover. You're going to have, you know, over 10% turnover every single year um, in, in the number of places that are happening. So they're going, they're, they're starting, they're stopping. There's a lot of, um, there's a lot of, uh, different, different kind of, uh, uh, different things that are happening in, in your data. So even if you were correct a day ago, does not mean you're correct today. Yeah. I think that's very important also for data scientists to verify our facts. Uh, a lot of things we believe are assumptions. And, uh, after a while we need to also examine that, assumptions and to see whether something changed because the model were trained on the old data, but when it was developed in production, it's dealing with a completely different, not completely different, but sometimes very different distribution. Yeah. Uh, and, and by the way, and, and you may have exogenous events that really change. So in COVID, like the models really, one of the, our, our business really took off in COVID. Mm-hmm. Um, so it really, really accelerated our business. And one of the reasons it accelerated our business is a lot of people thought this type of data doesn't really change that much. You don't have, it's not that accurate. It doesn't matter to be that accurate or something because it's just kind of, once you have a model, it's kind of steady state. And, um, and it was changing a lot pre COVID, but it wasn't in the zeitgeist. But once COVID hit, everyone realized how much this stuff is changing. And how how much really having really accurate data mattered? Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, how do you adapt to those changes? For example, specifically to COVID related data sets. COVID is just is just showing that data can change really really quickly. Mm-hmm. Again, something like a store hours changes. They it it always changed a lot. People forget how much it changed. Store hours are always changing constantly all the time. And like no restaurant actually even is open. It's pretty rare that most restaurants are open the same time every Thursday because on Thanksgiving or on Christmas or other days, it might have, it may be open on different types of times. Right. And so even you can't even have a model that says on every Thursday, it opens at 7am because that may change just by, by a whole bunch of other different factors that are happening. Mm -hmm. So these, these are pretty complicated ecosystems. Uh, and then in, in COVID just showed that it could get a lot more complicated. So there's a lot of things in COVID where you had stores that were changing their store hours. You had change, stores that were just closing for a whole month. Yeah. Uh, you had stores, you had restaurants that were takeout only, um, and, but you couldn't go in. And, and so there's all these different data things that were happening and still are happening. We're still living in an environment where there's constant change. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And uh, you have a lot of uh, geospatial data sets. Can you share some uh, uh, use cases of geospatial data? 
Yeah, well, there's the, the, the great thing about being a data company is also the downside about being a data company is that you have many, many, many different use cases and you have many different types of customers. So when you're selling an application, you know, let's say you're selling a, a billing system for dentists or something like that, it's pretty easy to know your target market. Okay, they're dentists and we're going to sell the same thing to the same person and we're going to go do that. When you're selling data, you're really an ingredient um, and your your ingredient is only a piece of the overall solution. Uh, so, you know, we like to say we're selling high quality butter to chefs and some of our chefs might be making like croissants with the mm-hmm. data. Some of our chefs might be, um, you know, making steaks. Some of the people we sell butter to might not even be making anything with the butter. They might be using it for chemistry experiments or some other type of thing. So we're just an ingredient provider. And of course, just because you sell high quality butter to a pastry chef doesn't mean the end product is going to be amazing, right? You still need to have many other great ingredients and you need an amazing chef, right? In the end, it's the, the ingenuity of that person or that group of people that you're selling to, that really determines how good the end product is. And again, we're just an ingredient. Now, maybe maybe having high quality butter is a necessary piece of having a great croissant. Maybe you can't have a great croissant, like a truly great croissant mm-hmm. without high quality butter, yeah. but there's so many other things that go into that. So it's really, really important. So when, if you think of different use cases, we have dozens and dozens of use cases. I mentioned one, which is like, where should I put my store? Mm-hmm. very simple kind of use case or where should I put my retail establishment? Um, another one should be, can be like, what, what real estate should I buy or sell or manage in a different way? And that could be, you know, a apartment building complex or a, a office building or some other type of thing. Uh, a, you know, if you stay on the retail, people actually use our data to figure out what store hours they should have. Maybe their current stores are at 7 a.m., should they move them to 6.30 a.m. and get more market share? Should they move it to 7.30 and increase profitability, right? Yeah. So that's an example of something. We do a lot of stuff in logistics. Mm. So, so many of our customers are in logistics, kind of moving things around, delivering warehouses, understanding industrials, um, et cetera. And then we do a lot of stuff with just like basic local search. If you search for like restaurants near me, on most of the places you can search for that on the internet, that's SafeGraph or the kind of the underlying place oh, wow. for that data. So yeah. we we sell, we have so many many different use cases where people use our data, mm-hmm. uh, and and I, I think I just mentioned you know four or so of our of maybe our twelve most common use cases that are out there. Again, it's it there's a good and bad about being a data company. The good thing is you can sell to so many different folks. The bad is you can sell to so many different folks. So you mean to have like a repeatable go to market motion. Yeah. Um that's a very exciting. I definitely want to dive deeper into those use cases. And I love that you mentioned you you provide analogy, you're uh providing ingredients, the butter for the croissant. That makes me hungry. And I also make me think <laughs> <laughs> what if um, the croissant, people don't want to eat croissant anymore, or the use cases are not important anymore. And as an ingredient provider, uh, it's interesting that you mentioned you're providing facts, but you don't do any analysis. So how do you know which facts are valuable? How do you pick those data to collect? I mean, we, we it's a good question. Um, and again, we yeah, you're right. We just pick facts and some facts are more valuable than others. And some facts are certainly more valuable to different groups of folks. 
So some of our customers value some of our facts and they don't buy certain other facts. So if you think of data, data is really simple. If you just think of it simply, it's just rows and columns, right? So none of our customers buy all of our rows and all of our columns. Um, You're usually going to buy a subset of the rows and a subset of the columns. So maybe you only operate in the US. Okay. So you don't certainly don't care about any of our data outside the US, right? Um, And we sell to major telcos in the US. But telco providers often in the U.S. are very, very U.S. centric. They don't they don't care about um, what's going on in Brazil, for instance, or something. Mm-hmm. Um, and then and then even within that, they may care about uh, they may not care about industrials, or they may not care about parks, or they may not care about schools, or they you may not care about retail or whatever it might be. So again, those are the rows. And then of course you've got the columns. Those would be like basic attributes about a place. So imagine a place could you could have. Things like store hours, you could have what the roof is made out of. You could have um, how many people go to this place. What's the credit card transactions, debit card transactions of the place? What's the shape of a place? So you have many, many, many different columns. And, you know, there's, there's, if you think of the number of rows, there's probably uh, the same number of places as people worldwide. And there's maybe like 10,000 relevant columns, attributes Mm -hmm. about any given place. Our goal is to have all that one day. We're not close today. Right. Our goal is to have, and so the hard part is figuring out where do we invest? What, what other rows do we invest in? And of course, you know, you're, you're asking your customers all the time, you know, the, so I really want to expand into Russia. Okay. Great. Um, okay. What, like, how's that, how much would you pay for that, et cetera? And, oh, or I really care about this particular attribute. I really want to know, like, the soil content under this place or something. Okay. Great. That's interesting. Or I want to know the number of bathrooms in a place. Okay. How can we how can we go do that? How can we go acquire that data, et cetera? Mm-hmm. Yeah, thanks for sharing that. Um, so it sounds like if we have those use cases, especially uh, from the feedback from the customer, it's easier for us to determine what data is valuable. I'm curious, has there ever been, been any cases where nobody has requested that data set, but you think this is gold mine and you collected that data and then pitched to people, hey, maybe you want to take a look at that? Yes, um, that there there are plenty of cases and plenty of times when we've done that we've been wrong. Uh, <laughs> so uh, it's a very humbling to kind of like predict the future. So sometimes we're correct. Mm-hmm. So sometimes we have an idea of the future. We do a ton of work, and it, it's very very expensive to create this data and to yeah. put together this data. It takes a lot of time and effort to go do that. So you know it can it could cost you potentially million more than a million dollars to put together like a particular type of data set yeah. um, in terms of your time and your effort. And so, you know, and, and sometimes you're wrong. So you make a big bet on something and you spend yeah. a lot of money, you spend a lot of time or like, oh my gosh, no one's, no one cares about this data. I was wrong about that. Yeah. Sometimes you hit a gold mine and sometimes, you know, you come up with something that is just so fundamental and, 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 and people really want to buy it. It's, a little bit easier to get to to hear from your customers. Mm-hmm. Um, then you have a better better sense of what's going on. If you have like six customers that say, "I really need this data. I will pay for it. Here's how much I will pay for it." Yeah. Okay. All right. Now we're talking. Now we have a little bit more customer discovery. Now, now we're at a point today where that's much easier to do because we have a lot of customers, and a lot of our customers are big customers with really big budgets. A little bit easier to have those conversations today. When we started the company. We had a we we had less direct um, uh, feedback that we could get, and we had to make uh, bigger bets on things, and our bets had a much lower hit rates uh, as to how they panned out. Mm-hmm. 
Yeah, thanks for sharing that. And um, do you have, a, can you share an example? What is the example of a data set that you thought was important, but nobody wanted to purchase that? Oh my gosh, I'm not sure I want to share because I'd be really embarrassed uh, <laughs> okay. by 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 some of these things. But but it, it does happen a lot, and you know mm-hmm. you have an idea, maybe even you do some customer discovery or some potential customer discovery, and um, or people say that they want it, but then actually when you have it, nobody really wants to buy it, uh, and. Uh, and so it, you know, it's not that different from having features. So if you have a if you're a SaaS company, you want to add a new feature or something like that. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's very hard to know um, a priori like what's important, what people really, really want, what they just kind of talk about, what they ask for, or you know, you have a you hear a salesperson say, "If you only had this product, I could sell it," or something like that. Is that really true, or is that just something the customer saying? Uh, so it's 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 often very 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 difficult to know, and it's very very humbling to do mm-hmm. any type of technology company, whether you're doing data or whether you're doing services or whether you're doing um, whether you're doing a, a kind of a solution like a SaaS solution or something like that. Coming up with new products and new features is very humbling, and nobody has even the best companies out there. If you think of like Google, their hit rate is like twenty five percent. Or something, right? Mm-hmm. Even like, and they're probably the you know one, you know one of the best companies ever created in the history of the world. So even an amazing company like that is is often wrong. It's very 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 difficult to know. Yeah, um, thanks for sharing that. So um, when we think about geospatial data, for example, those uh, restaurants, um, I wonder, do we have uh, time as a factor? For example, how long customers stay in the location? I think if we add another dimension, that can enrich the story we can tell. Yeah, no, you're exactly right. So if you think of data, it's very simple. So data, there's data is usually about some sort of noun, and there's four main nouns that data is about. You have data about people. You have data about places. That's what SafeGraph does. We focus on data about physical mm-hmm. places. You have data about like kind of organizations, like a company data. And then you have data about products. So uh, probably 95% of data is about one of those four things. You can cross them with each other. And so you can have different data sets that cross with each other. And then you can also cross them with time, as you mentioned, because a lot of data is temporal. And then you can cross them with price as well, right? And so... Um, Temporal data is more valuable than non-temporal data because it's changing. People want to get the updates to changes and stuff like that. Um, And so, you know, if you think of um, data about a person, like certain data doesn't change that often uh, about a person or something that that might be data we're all familiar with. So things like, you know, um, you know, even age that age might change a lot, but it's easily calculated. Um, the change, right? Certainly the, yeah. your, your date of birth, the year you were born doesn't change, right? Things like gender don't change very often. Marital status don't change very often. Some of those things change, but but they don't change very, very often. Um, things that change all the time, like every single day. Um, so that could be like sales data. You mentioned foot traffic data, um, other types of data on a given place. That data can be really, really valuable because it mm-hmm. has some sort of time component. You know, classic data, if you think about data of a company, would be um, a stock price. So stock price would be like a, a price and a time and a com- and an and a organization component. And that, that, that price goes back a long time. If you think of like the AT&T stock data will go back well over a hundred years. Now, maybe a hundred years ago, the tick was once per day. Now it's every 10th of a second. So you're having a different kind of version of time mm-hmm. over time. Um, but it's really valuable data. Anyone who's going to trade on AT&T stock 
and and really any other types of types of stock is probably going to want that data going back in time, but also want yeah. it going forward in time as well. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's a very exciting. So um, there's a use case that I um, think a lot about. I want to share with you to see what you think. So, for example, we have uh, the footprint data, people going to a location. For example, we want to evaluate the popularity of a coffee shop. And then from the data, and uh, we can see a lot of people go into the coffee shop, but people maybe leave in a very short period of time. Um, the story behind that, maybe the map is wrong or the coffee shop, I don't know, is really ugly, has a weird smell inside and people leave immediately. So if people just look at the number of visits, they might arrive at the conclusion, oh, this is a popular coffee shop. But when they look at the time or dig deeper into what is really going on behind the story, there might be something different. So when we provide those data to uh, your our customers or data scientists, um, all those time location are correct. However, without a deeper understanding, the um, inference or the story they tell can be wrong. So there kind of is a gap, and uh, SafeGraph's role is fact checker. Um, you mentioned you don't do much about insights, so. If a data scientist have challenges in tell the right story from a right data, but there are some nuances in it, um, what is SafeGraph's role? And uh, uh, do you help the data scientist to tell the right story uh, in those type of uh, edge cases? Yes, yeah. So for, that's a really interesting use case. So first of all, uh, you know, we have a data we have a we have a data product called Patterns, which is. Uh, how busy a place is. If you ever see on the internet when a place is busy by time of day, um, if you ever see that not on Google, that's almost always the safe graph data. So almost all those companies are our customers. Mm-hmm. Uh, and we do a lot of different types of stuff on patterns, like where do people generally come from, et cetera. And, and we'll have, as you mentioned, like roughly some sort of like understanding of foot traffic, high level popularity and popularity by time of day, by time of week, by time of year, et cetera. Uh, but we also have, what, 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 you know, an, uh, an alternative to that, which is also like dwell time. So not only how yeah. long people are staying, but some sort of dwell time and what's the median dwell time. What are what are some other types of what are the you know seventy fifth and and twenty fifth percentiles of dwell time, et cetera, on a given place? How do these places compare to other types of places? And so you can literally see two Starbucks right across the street from each other with a very 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 different dynamics on all those different dimensions. At the same time, we have another product called Spend, um, and that's kind of aggregating data from uh, things like credit cards, debit card transactions, and stuff like that. We can get a very, very similar view, right? Mm-hmm. So similar types of things, and you can get things like um, uh, median um, median transaction vol- uh, uh, price, how many transactions there are, um, you know, a whole bunch of other things. And again, same thing. You can literally see two Starbucks right across the street from each other, um, and one having completely, you know, one literally doing like double the average transaction price than the other. It's really, yeah. really interesting. Um, so, so it's and, and so it's it's interesting. The data is like really fun to explore. Uh, but you're right. Sometimes uh, you need to dive in a little bit more, or sometimes there's an issue and stuff like that. And so we have a lot of a lot of our product and sales engineering time is is listening to customers and potential customers. Hey, I don't understand this this data. Is yeah. um, I don't understand what's going on. And sometimes they're pointing on a bug. It's like they don't understand something because like we messed up. It's like oh mm-hmm. okay, whoa, we just messed up. 
We're going to go fix that thing, right? Because you can't be perfect when you have billions and billions of facts. You're going to make you're going to make mistakes. Yeah. Um, we have we have a bug in our system. We got to make that better. But but oftentimes it's not a bug. Um, it's just something interesting that they right. found. Right. Yeah. Here's an uh, interest like, hey, these two Starbucks, they're literally across the street from each other and they're mm-hmm. very different. Yeah. That can't be true, right? They're right across the street. Actually, it is true. Um, it's very, you know, and 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 here's why, here's what's going on, here's what we, other customers have seen from this type of thing, uh, et cetera. So it's it can be really, really fascinating to explore data because you're you're what one of the things you do when you explore data is you're uncovering secrets. Yeah. And you're learning about all these new things that are happening in the world mm-hmm. and you're 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 getting a deeper understanding of the truth. Mm-hmm. Yeah, thanks for sharing that. So uh, it seems like you don't directly provide those stories and check uh, what's going on in, uh, in the back end. But if a customer encounter those challenges, you have sales engineers help them to do yeah. some deep dive. And not just sales engineers. It could be our product people. Sometimes they're all, mm-hmm. our, our actual engineers are on calls yeah. with them. Right? We, want, we want to hear from our customers and our potential customers. And, and when we have those discussions, that also gives us a lot of good ideas. Mm-hmm. So, oh, wow, we should be doing this or we should do this. Or sometimes, look, it's not just a fact, but you, there's, a, there's a calculation on top of the fact that if you can pre-calc it for your customer, you just save that customer three hours of time or something, yeah. right? Um, and if we have five customers that all have the same pre-calc needs, we'll just pre-calc that particular thing. Uh, and, and, you know, and, and then the other thing with data is just because you have the facts and just because you have the coverage, there's one more step, which is like, how do you get the data into your customer system so that they could use it? Yeah. So like if our customer uses Snowflake, we don't want to just give them like a big CSV and then they have to like upload and Snowflake. Ideally, we could just push it directly into Snowflake so they can start mm-hmm. using it immediately. If they use Databricks, same sort of thing. You know, a lot of our customers use AWS, but some customers might use Azure or GCP. We should have an easy way for them to hook into it rather than require them to do engineering. We should, they are, we're, we're selling into engineering teams, data science teams, machine learning teams. These people are, extre- have, their time is extremely valuable. So how do we limit the amount of time that they need to do to do any type of data munging? And they can actually take that time instead, do like data exploration and actually do innovation on top of our data. Mm-hmm. Yeah, thanks for sharing that. And one thing you mentioned is very interesting, like two star- Starbucks across the street, they can have totally different behavior. And uh, I can imagine maybe uh, if there's the same company, they can compare two different stores. But if I have a restaurant and then there's someone, another company owns another restaurant and I see something weird in my data set, um, I think because of the privacy of the customers, you cannot share the other restaurants data to for me to compare uh i wonder since you own all the data do you calculate a certain type of geographic or industry average for customers to kind of uh, as a safety net or fact check so they know they're not falling too far away from the average it's safer we probably should do something like that we don't have we don't have that particular thing it's a good idea and it's probably something we should do to give them a sense of of what's going on. We do give them a lot of different core facts. We give our customers a lot of different core facts so they can mm-hmm. understand things. Uh, we don't always normalize the facts yeah. per se, because um, once you get into the normalization game, you're, we, mm-hmm. we, we, we sell facts, essentially we sell truth. Once yeah. you get into normalization, you are in religion territory, yeah. right? Yeah. And it's like, 
you're a Bayesian, I'm not a Bayesian. Uh, and you know, in your in your belief, like you know, uh, um, all, you know, all you know, the only way to go to heaven is to be a Bayesian or something. Somebody else may believe mm-hmm. something very, very different about something. So you just you you get a little bit in religion territory. So we try to give as many facts as possible, so that people with who have different religions around normalization can do it in different types of ways. And uh, I would say even within our customers. They may, you know, they may have one data science group who does it one way, a different data science group mm-hmm. to do another day, especially we sell a lot into financial services. They have many different ways of, of normalizing things. So we try to give them the, the core do and even, even just basic stuff like this particular restaurant opened up in June of 2002 yeah. and it closed and it closed for business in May of 2021, right? Even just that type of thing, that, that's kind of a core data that you'll get yeah. from SafeGraph. Even that, just like, how do you normalize that? How do you think about that? How do you know what's going on in the economy from different starts and stops and other types of things? You're just going to get a lot of different ways of people looking at it. And that's the innovator's job. Our job is to give them the facts so mm-hmm. that they can do their job even better. Yeah, uh, that makes sense. And uh, you mentioned core facts. Can you help me define what are core facts to you? Do you have any examples? Well, anything that that is true. So again, like store hours would be a core fact. Um, mm-hmm. You know, uh, if you, it'd be really good to know maybe, you know, um, uh, how many bathrooms does a place have or something, right? Uh you know, uh, we don't we don't have that data today, but certainly that's the type of thing our customers uh, may may ask you for, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, may ask us for um, today. Another thing we don't have today is like what the roof is made out of. A lot of customers may care about that. So there's a lot of just core facts that people want to know, and there's there's as, as I mentioned, probably ten thousand relevant attributes about any given place. Today we sell maybe 300, 400 attributes about a given place. So we have a ways to go. We have a you know maybe a three to four percent of the attributes that are out there. So we have a ways to go to increase the number of attributes on any given place. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and uh, it's very interesting. You mentioned the difference between truth and religion. You also talked about that in the uh, DAS Bible. So some example you mentioned the FICO score is religion or. Um, I can think of, uh, I think the, the Zillow Zestimate probably also in a religion. Great, great example of religion, yeah. Right. So yeah. Um, are there any cases where it's hard to differentiate truth and religion when you um, collect the data? Yeah, sometimes it can be. You know, we use machine learning to, to fill in holes in the data, mm-hmm. right? And so sometimes you have to make some sort of prediction of the truth. You know, we, we like to say we, at SafeGraph, we predict the past. Um, mm-hmm. We're actually predicting the truth because you don't always know you have holes in the data and you could be wrong about something like, you know, you could be, you could uh, crawl the one thing we do. We crawl the store hours of every McDonald's that are out there, yeah. but the store hours usually say on Monday, we're open at this time, Tuesday, we're open at this time, but they don't say, they don't usually say uh, on on Christmas, we're open on these times or something, right? Not mm-hmm. usually. Sometimes they do, but they don't usually say that like right on the website. So you have to make some sort of prediction, like the store hours might change during Christmas time. Uh, and, um, and so that's a truth type of thing that, that is, um, that, 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 that's out there. In the, um, you know, in the case of like the Zestimate on Zillow, there yeah. is the actual transaction price of the house. 
So this house sold in 2018 for $400,000. And it is, um, it, you know, and, and we got that data from the county and it's extremely accurate data. Yeah. Then you have, okay, what is that house worth today? Right. And, you know, we may um, have some indications that maybe they did some improvements to the house. We may have some indications that the school system is a little bit better today than it was in 2018. We may have indications that a lot of people are moving to this area because it's very beautiful. Mm -hmm. And so we're going to say that this house, which was worth 400, it transacted $400,000 in 2018. We're going to say it's worth $550,000 today, right? And that is an estimate that may or may not be true, but that's the, you know, and we're going to use a lot of different data to help us form that estimate. Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah. So you have a lot of data sets. And uh, as a data scientist, I know for myself, collecting data sometimes takes 90% of the entire workflow. Uh, So what is the workflow look like in SafeGraph when you collect the raw data, um, fact check and make it into a useful and uh, a data set? Well, first of all, you're right. So most when we talk to most data scientists, they just spend a lot of time collecting data, a lot of time like munging the data because the data is super dirty and all that part of their job. They don't, they, when we talk to most data scientists, they don't like to do that. And, and it's actually for many data scientists, it's like 90% of their job is like data collection, data munging, data cleaning, and only 10% of their job is actually doing data science, which is what they love to do, right? Um, we would love to flip it. It should be like 90% of your data scientists should be 90% of your job is doing the stuff that's like so interesting and fun and exciting and hard. And, you know, that's what you wake up wanting to do in your data scientists. And like, hopefully companies like SafeGraph can do like the boring other stuff, the cleaning, the finding, the getting you the quality data. So that is our goal. And our goal is to make everybody a lot more productive uh, going to do that. And it's hard um, yeah. and it's hard to do it at scale. Uh, so you really want to do it because you have to build a whole and it's expensive. So that means you need a lot of clients, uh, to go, you know, a client might pay us X dollars for mm-hmm. a particular piece of data. That data almost invariably costs 20 X for us to make. Mm-hmm. So we need to get at least 20 clients just to break even on this particular data. And yeah. then, you know, we start, we start making money over time. And so for any one client, it would become, it'd be incredibly difficult to go do that. Cause again, they can pay us 5% of the cost of going to do the data. Plus they may not even have time to mm-hmm. go do that. Uh, but you, and, and, you, and then of course you really want to get better and better and better over time. Doing data is, is a lot like killing an onion where you have these like series of 1% improvements. And we all know 72, 1% improvements is you, you double, right? You get, you, get, you, get, you get twice as good, but it's just a lot of these little things and a lot of this little error here and you're, you're changing this thing here and yeah. you're just making it just a little bit better, a little bit better. And a lot of that comes from feedback, from hard work, from being wrong a lot, from having people to tell you wrong or discovering things. You just get a little bit better over time. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And uh I know you have a lot of geospatial data, but you also have other type of data like transactions. And now we also talk about time. So when you build the data infrastructure, the data engineering pipeline, do you try to have a kind of central standard pipeline rules to fit everything in a kind of a general schema or it's a case by case? Well, at SafeGraph, at, at least we have a framework where, we, you know, we, we, 
everything in, in Safeguard is about a physical place. So in the end, it's all about a physical place. And um, we, you know, we use a, uh, uh, and, and so one of the things that you want to have in, in, in a data company is some sort of join key where you mm-hmm. can join the data easily. Yeah. We use a publicly available join key called place key that we're involved with, but a lot of other great engineering teams are involved with which is a uh, very simple way of taking, let's say, an address or a fraction of an address, um, 555 North Main Street, Suite 904, and you can have Street or STR, and you can have North or NDOT, and you could have Suite 504, Number 504, you know, and taking this like very, very complex string that can have many, many permutations and moving that into a string, which is, a, you, which is simple and where everything will, will, will resolve into the same sort of string where you can do really, really, really easy matching. Mm-hmm. Um, you, you want some sort of way of identifying and being able to join data easily and you want some sort of framework. So if you're having data on organizations, you want some sort of way of like basically resolving you know, McDonald's, McDonald's Inc., McDonald's with an apostrophe S, McDonald's with no S, you know, they, they all have to resolve into the same entity, McDonald's.com, et cetera. Um, the, the ticker symbol for McDonald's, you know, uh, they all have to resolve to the same kind of entity ID yeah. so that you can easily kind of do that. So once you, once you know what your thing is, your noun is that you're going to have data on, in our case, our noun is a physical place, mm-hmm. then you can really focus everything on that. So every single data point at SafeGraph all, you know, we have this thing, we, we live off this place key. Every single thing has a place key attached to it because it's yeah. all about a physical place. Let's say, you know, a, a McDonald's on 555 Main Street, and then that data lives off of it. And so that's the row. The row is that, let's say, a place key or, 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 or some sort of core entity. And then you have lots of different columns that are coming off of that data. And again, you could have potentially thousands and thousands of columns on any given row that people might want to, uh, to, to pull data. But for each column, you may have a very, very different pipeline of how you get the column, where you get that column from, where, how, how you resolve it, how do you do that. Um, and so you want to have some sort of standardization on the rows, but each column might be very, very, very different. You may have a very, very different team in our case, that's kind of how we divide our kind of both our engineering and our product teams are really on the, a lot of it's on core, you know, core different types of columns. And you're going to maybe have a very, very, very different team with very different skill set who are going to be main, essentially manufacturing data about those columns. Yeah. Um, thanks for sharing that. So what is the most challenging part in collecting data and how did you tackle those challenges? Well, I, I would say the most challenging part about being a data company, et cetera, I, I think collection is very hard and manufacturing and you know, all the things that we do, it's very, very technically difficult to do. But yeah. the, most, the, the, the more difficult is actually marketing it to your customers uh, because, again, you're just an ingredient. Um, and a lot of times people, maybe unlike butter, I use the butter analogy a lot, but unlike butter, yeah. people may not even know that they need it. Right. Probably anyone who's making a, if you're, if you're, uh, if you're making a croissant, you probably know you need butter. Butter is kind of an important ingredient if you're making a croissant. But you know, in our, uh, unless you're making a vegan croissant, then you need, you know, you maybe need a cashew <laughs> butter or something, right? Um, but in our case, we are selling data. Not everyone understands it. Not understand understands why they need it. They may not understand why different quality is important about it. So one of the things that we do at SafeGraph. And, and, and we try to do a better and better job at SafeGraph is really trying to be very, very transparent about the mm-hmm. data. 
um, at a data company, I think transparency is way more important than at a at an application company. If you're running a general SaaS company, transparency it's it's okay, but I don't think it's it's it's, it's the most important thing in your selling motion that's mm-hmm. out there. In a data company, it's definitely top five most important things you can do is really be transparent. So one thing is being transparent. It's like, what data do you have? So, you know, it, it would make sense that you would publish your schema, right? If you have data, you should publish your schema that's yeah. out there. You would be surprised. Most data companies do not even publish their schema. So you don't even know what they sell. Yeah. Um, Another thing, okay, okay, well, you know, you, if you think of your fill rates on different things on your schema is going to be different. In some cases, your fill rate might be 100%. Some cases, your fill rate might be 10% or something like that. Mm-hmm. Well, maybe you should publish your fill rates. Yeah. Almost no data companies publish their fill rates, right? Um, so really trying to be, um, now, here's where it really starts to get interesting in transparency. Do you publish your bugs? Right, mm-hmm. you say, "Hey, here's all the areas we were prob- we had problems with last month that we had bugs, which we fixed it, or we still have bugs that we haven't fixed." Mm-hmm. So at Safegraph, we pu- we publish our bugs. We try to say, "Look, here's all of our problems. Here's all the other things that we're working on." Because we are, who do we sell to? We sell to data scientists. Data scientists they like transparency. Yeah, they like kind of diving into particular mm-hmm. things. So when it, depending on who you market to. You may want to change your your thing, but I think for most data companies, I would benefit from being a lot more transparent. At Safegraph, I think we're uh, we're we're probably one of the most transparent companies out there. But I'd say we're still only a seven out of ten. And I want to try to figure out how do we get to a nine out of ten? How do we get to a ten out of ten? How do we really push the envelope of like maybe even making our product roadmap transparent or a whole bunch of other types of things you can make transparent for your customers and your potential customers. Mm-hmm. Yeah, uh, that's a great point because uh, as a data scientist, I know they're never going to be a perfect analysis, perfect data set. So if you're transparent about your mistakes, that definitely have earned more of my trust. And if a company doesn't talk about their mistakes at all, it doesn't mean they don't make any mistakes, but it's also like it's unknown, right? Yeah. Um, Another thing is just not being hyperbolic about your data. Yeah. You know, but a lot of companies would be like, we're 99.99% accurate or something like that. Like, I mean, I'd say, but we're definitely not 99.99%. Like, that is yeah. like so impossible to mm-hmm. do, go do. Um, and, you know, so a lot of companies, like, they will say those things and no one believes it. No one, no, everyone knows that's not true. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. And so, yeah, so we're really just trying to be actually, just trying to be really truthful about about your data, about what's going on, uh, and not and 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 saying, look, we we are we're just trying to make it better. Um, we're making yeah. it better every single day. We're really focused on making it better, and we care deeply about making it better. And if you find something that's wrong, we love that. We're not going to argue. With, we're gonna we're gonna take that in, and we're gonna use that to make it even better. So the next month, when you get the new delivery of our product, the new release. Or releasing every week or every month or whatever we're releasing or whatever cycle we're releasing at, you're just going to get a much, much better solution every single month or every week. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And uh, I love that you mentioned you want to get to a, a 10 from where you're at right now. And you mentioned uh, uh, one example is uh, sharing your product roadmap. Are there some something else specific you think that can help you to get to a 10? Well, um, you know, I, th- I think there's probably a lot of different things that one can do on the transparency side. So really trying to understand um, how do you know this is accurate? Um, really trying to understand, 
you know, sometimes, sometimes it's hard to be like a hundred percent transparent because there might be some secrets in your company that you don't want to give to competitors or whatever mm-hmm. else it might be that's out there. So you have to weigh all those things in, but I think maybe companies are just trying to like me, maybe I've been wrong too in the past. Maybe we're all trying to be like too secretive about everything. Um, and, uh, and actually it, it maybe, maybe we should just go a lot further with just be really opening up the kimono to your yeah. customers, especially if you're proud, like this is hard to do. And, uh, and as data scientists, which is our core customers, as they learn more about SafeGraph, they get, they get, they get really excited mm-hmm. about it. And sometimes just sharing the problems. Okay, here's a problem. Or we ran into the scaling solution and they're like, oh, well, okay, I've run into those types of scaling solutions. Like, I understand this is an issue. Like you're ingesting like billions and billions of hundreds of billions of facts and, and you're trying to like munge them all and do this thing. It's like, oh, we had this, you know. So so maybe being a little bit more transparent about like the issues that you're running into or the other things that are happening and also where it's not working. So yeah. one of the things that like we have data that, you know, for particular use cases works really well. If you think of, if you think of these rows and columns, it works really well for this one use case. Mm-hmm. This other one, we've seen like six customers try it for this other use case and it doesn't work. The data science models have shown no lift. Maybe we should actually publish that. Hey, we've had six different folks try this particular thing with our data. And guess mm-hmm. what? All of them have found it doesn't work. It doesn't mean it doesn't work. Mm-hmm. But it does mean that six very, very smart data science team has tried to make it work and they have failed. So maybe you shouldn't use our data for that particular thing. And no customer does that. No company does that. Mm-hmm. But that's something that we're thinking about. Maybe we should be much more open about like when somebody tried to do something with their data and doesn't work. And then, of course, you know, we're, you're always open about the stuff that does work, right? Everyone writes case studies about all the things that do work. But those case studies are a lot more believable when you couple it with the, here's all the problems that we had as well when we tried other things that didn't work. Mm-hmm. Um, thanks for sharing that. So are you personally involved in those sales conversations? Oh, yeah, of course. Yeah. yeah. I mean, you're, we're, we're still a startup. So the, you know, the, yeah. the CEO does everything in a startup. <laughs> yeah. I'm asking because as a data scientist, sometimes it feels like we need to do some sales and marketing for our projects, for our models. And we, when we need to pitch to the uh, stakeholders to invest in the project uh, to use our model. So I'm curious, when you pitch the data to a customer, what, how how do you go about it? To say, for example, maybe we do a role play. I'm a customer. I'm a restaurant, but I don't see the value of the data. How are you going to convince me? Well, I, first of all, not everyone should buy the data, so it's important that you don't convince. So we we've had scenarios where we convince people to buy our data, and it, and it mm-hmm. wasn't useful to them. That is a bad scenario, right? Mm-hmm. Where where we make money, the selling a company is, is actually pretty expensive for us to do this time to sell into a company. And then to service that company, the only way we make money is if that company becomes a long-term customer. They keep renewing for many, many years. So if that company gets our data and then and then doesn't find it valuable and then churns, that is a huge, huge loss for for SafeGraph. Mm -hmm. So we do not want to sell into a company that doesn't need it. So really what we're trying to do is align. Um, and, and by the way, we've done it before we've sold into companies and they don't need our data. Like, and, and so, and I've done it personally, and that's a mistake. That is a giant mistake that we've learned from. Um, you do not want to push something onto a customer that they're not going to benefit. So really we want to align, like, let's figure this out. 
together mm. whether this is going to go work for them. And by the way, if the customer, even if you know it's going to work and the customer doesn't think it's going to work, it's not going to work because the customer is mm-hmm. not going to really push it and, and implement right. it. So you can't like, you can't push a company to go do something that they're not like aligned to do. So you, yeah. there's a mutual discovery in any type of sales process isn't about pushing something on to somebody, right? It's not a, we're not building a one-off transaction here and then I'm going to move on. A, mm-hmm. a sales process is really about mutually, let's figure this out together. We, we have some expertise because we sell into a lot of data science teams. We see a lot of different people doing this. So we can, we, but, but you have expertise because you're, you're doing, you're, you know, your company, your company is a little bit of a snowflake. It's, a, it's an individual type of thing. Let's yeah. figure this out together. Let's see if it makes sense. Maybe it, maybe there's an obvious thing. It makes sense. Maybe it's obvious. It doesn't often we're in some sort of gray zone and we need to navigate it. Maybe mm. there are some other thing. Maybe, maybe you don't, maybe we have a self-serve where you can buy, you know, $800 worth of data instead of, yeah. instead of coming to our enterprise. Maybe you should just use the self-serve for a while for maybe even for six months. And then, and then if that's really working well, then we can upgrade to another system. Uh, but it's really important that you're not pushing stuff onto that's That's a great way to, um, to, to, to get a really bad company because you're just going to have tons of churn. And churn, yeah. churn kills kills um, any type of enterprise companies. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's a great point. Thanks for sharing that. So you talk about alignment. How do you find alignment with your customer? Uh, well, I mean, it's 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 really making sure that you're getting something that they're going to benefit from and use, <laughs> right? Um, and then continually to delight them. One of the ways to continually delight a customer. Is it, and, and this is true not just for data companies like SafeGraph, mm-hmm. but also for any type of product company is having some sort of high product velocity. So mm-hmm. how much are you changing the product for the better? How much are you improving that product over time? So yeah. in our case, like in many cases of, of uh, SaaS, company, you, you, let's say you, you, you buy, a, in our case, most of our customers pay a yearly fee. Right, so they're they're signing on for some sort of yearly service. They pay X dollars a year for some sort of data feed from us, mm-hmm. um, and so they get their. Let's say they get the they buy in February, and now it's June. Is the product much better in June than they bought in February? Now they're delighted. They got like all this product improvement at the same price, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and yeah, you know, like imagine it gets, like one of the things about one of the cool things about buying a Tesla. Is um, they they do all this you know they do over the year updates and your car actually gets better over time. So yeah. you bought this car in June and now it's December. The car is actually better. Maybe it's only marginally better, but it's kind of cool. Like you know, whereas when you you maybe buy most other cars, mm-hmm. um, six months later it's the same, or maybe it's a little bit worse because there's some more wear and tear on the car or some other type of thing. Like it hasn't actually actually improved. The more you can improve the product out of, over time, the more the customer gets delighted. Again, if you're doing these, even these 1% improvements, they add up really, really, really fast. And that 1% improvement, it's also hard to measure because the 1% improvement might be a 0% improvement for 90% of your customers. But that, but for but for 10% of your customers, that 1% improvement is like a 25% improvement, right? Yeah. Um, because it really changes the game. It really makes things much, much better. Mm-hmm. So doing these series of improvements really can change. And so having really focusing on making your product better every single day is going to go a really long way with your customer. It's going to make them love you more. Um, but, and also they're going to, 
and and then one of the other things you can do, and this goes back to be transparent, is yeah. is maybe you can go back in time and you can show all the releases. Let's say you have a monthly release cadence. How did how did our product change over? How did our product change over time mm-hmm. in the last month? And then they can see, okay, wow, there's this trajectory of change. Well, that's probably a good predictor of the future trajectory of change. Yeah. If you buy a product that hasn't changed in three years, I can. There's a very high likelihood it won't change in the next year, right? Yeah. Um, so, how is that change? How has that change happened? The the past again, past um, performance is not a perfect predictor of future performance, but it is a predictor. Yeah, yeah, that's a great point. And uh, uh, previously, you mentioned. Uh, uh, something that I thought was very interesting. You mentioned for a data set, there are six data scientists looking into that, but didn't find anything. And then maybe you could share that with uh, other customers. So basically, this is kind of like a crowdsourcing. Um, I understand you're running it as a company, but have you thought about it kind of publish maybe not the entire data set, but like a small subset of data set, kind of like Kaggle and use crowdsource for data scientists to, you know, learn to play with it and then gather insights from it. Uh, we haven't done that, but it's a good idea. Um, so maybe it's something that we should do. Uh, and uh, yeah, it's a, it's a really good idea. One of the problems with running a company is, um, and this is something I struggle with as a CEO, yeah. is it's, uh, there's a lot of good ideas out there. Um, mm-hmm. And this, this is a good example of one that like maybe we should do. And um, and we have a lot of smart people at our company that are constantly coming up with the good ideas. And yeah. we can do like, and we we can come up with like 40 good ideas and we can do like two of them or something because mm-hmm. uh, yeah. we only have the ability to do so many. So part of it is just figuring out, okay, what should, what new ideas should we add? And one of the areas that, one of the things that I have uh, uh, where, where I could do a better job of as a CEO is, is really being more focused about what we do. Mm-hmm. And um, and one of the things that I think I've done, one of the things I where I messed up in the past, both at SafeGraph but also other companies that I've been out in the past, is just trying to do too many things at once. Yeah. Um, and then you often are not going to be great at any one of those things, mm-hmm. and you're going to have maybe a bunch of things that are okay, some things that are mediocre, some things that just did fall flat. Um, rather than picking like the one or two things you really, really are going to just do an incredible job of and be world-class at. Yeah. Uh, thanks for sharing that. So what is your principles when you evaluate good ideas? What are some, uh, uh, you know, mental models within SafeGraph when you consider where to invest in projects? Well, uh, it's a good question. It's very hard to figure out uh, because, um, you know, as, as we mentioned in data, a lot of data is really about these series of 1% improvements. Yeah. And, um, and you really have to focus on that and you have to constantly be working on that. But of course, if you only w- do that, you're, you're only going to grow at a certain rate. So you do have to do some things that are a little bit more step function oriented as well. Mm-hmm. And all good companies, all, or may, let's say all great companies have uh, both, they do both a series of these 1% improvements and they do these step functions. And that could be both on their product, um, mm-hmm. but also maybe on their go-to-market motions or other types of motions that are out there, or you know, even on, it could be an HR thing that they're doing, et cetera. So you need both. And the thing with the 1% improvements is uh, they have a very high likelihood of success. Uh, so they're very, um, it's very intoxicating to go do that. 
and the thing with the the step functions is they have a very very low likelihood of success. Yeah. Right. Um, the, the in the in the in the series of one percent improvements, there's usually fifty other companies that have done the same thing. And let's say you're improving your go to market motion and you're trying to like you know make your sales team more efficient or something mm-hmm. like that. There's all these companies out there that you can learn from. There's all these books. There's all these blogs. There's all these other types of things that are out there in the step function. There's usually zero other things you can learn from. Um, You have to make some sort of guess and you have to go do that. Uh, But the step function can, you know, 2x to to 100x your business. Um, And uh, and so they have, so if you don't do any step functions at all, uh, you you can have uh, you can have a problem, but if you're doing too many step functions at any given time, uh, you are almost certainly going to fail at all of them. So yeah. you do need to you do need to calibrate how you're making these investments, and it's very 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 difficult to go do. No one's no one does it g- great. Um, you know, maybe the best you can get is good, uh, and again, even companies like Google and Amazon, like most of their step functions fail, but they still continually do step functions. Yeah. Um, so I think the investment in people is also very important. So I'm curious about uh, uh, some career advice and hiring in SafeGraph. So I interviewed Nick Singh on this podcast, and we talked about acing the data science interview, a book he wrote. And he told me a story that he sent you a cold email asking for an opportunity, and then you let him do marketing for SafeGraph, um, even though he didn't have much experience. He was doing um, a growth engineer at Facebook. So do you remember how did you make that decision? I think often uh, people have different talents in different areas and sometimes they put themselves in a box, but they're uh, may- maybe they have talents beyond that box. Yeah. And so in, in his particular case, he was an engineer um, and he was a relatively young engineer. He had studied computer science in college um, he was an engineer at Facebook. And so, you know, he kind of put himself on the engineering box and that's a great box to be in. That's a, you know, a, a very, very exciting place to be. But engineers can do many other things in life too. Yeah. Um, in his particular case, you know, we thought maybe he could do, you know, things in marketing. Um, the ru- person who runs product for us at SafeGraph, her name is Lauren Spiegel. She's a very, very interesting person. She started her career as a lawyer. Mm-hmm. And she became a partner in a law firm. Then one day she decided she wanted to be an engineer. So she quit her extremely high paying job at a law firm and went to coding school and then became a software engineer. Then she applied to SafeGraph as a software engineer. She was already a pretty accomplished software engineer, but we thought she might be better in product. So we said, mm-hmm. hey, why don't you try this product thing? And then nowadays she is the she runs all of our product org. At the at the company, so you can see just a very um, kind of winding career path, and that's true of most people. When you start to like really dive into most people, let's say you take the average, maybe maybe not true for someone who's like twenty three years old or something, but as people move on their career, their career path is a little bit windy, very unpredictable. They're going in different directions. Mm-hmm. Uh, they're learning from different types of things. Even though she was like in her case, she was a great lawyer. But she had other passions that she wanted to pursue as well. So yeah. people also, as they get older or as they change, they might want to do different things. All that is, uh, all that's possibility. And just putting someone in a box for their entire lifetime based on their the major that they decided when they were 19 years old, that seems a little odd to me. Yeah. And on your Twitter, I think you mentioned you, you're a lover of uh, weirdos. So what is a weirdo to you? 
Oh, well, I do think sometimes uh, there, there's too much of putting uh, convention is often over uh, overrated. Yeah. Uh, and so, you know, a lot of conventional things to be completely conventional or to have more conventional views, it, it allows you to get along with people quite well. Um, and it can be important uh, in life. But uh, but I, I have always gravitated to people that are a little bit weirder, a weirdo. They're, they're maybe, um, maybe they're socially awkward or they have a very, very different view about a particular thing or they've just tried different things. So they have a, a traditional resume or something like that. It's nice and sometimes refreshing to, uh, so, to see that. Now, again, you, you, if, the, if they're too weird, then maybe they, they just can't work in an organization and stuff like that. So there's always a balance between yeah. the two. But in a lot of organizations, it's just like very, very, very conventional and, mm-hmm. and, very, and not enough weird. Yeah. And what is the most unconventional hiring decision you've ever made? One thing is, I, I maybe flip it around a bit. Mm-hmm. One thing is when you have someone who's really doing well in your company, like how do you keep them motivated? Yeah. Um, so how do you keep giving them new and exciting products and new exciting projects and stuff like that? When I was at LiveRamp, um, we hired this person named Anika Gupta as a software engineer. She's a very, very talented person. But you could tell she was going places even when she was 22 years. We hired her right out of college when she was 22 yeah. years old. Um, and you know, quickly we decided she should run marketing. And she's like, oh, I've never run marketing before. I don't even know what marketing is. It's like, well, yeah. you're a smart person. Go run marketing. And then we decided she should move into product. Then we said she should run product. And then she should run engineering. And then, you know, and, and so you, you're, you, you want to make sure when you find super talented people, you can grow with them. Mm-hmm. And, um, and, it's a little bit weird in her case. I think she was running like hundreds of people when she was like 28 years old or something like that. And that that's odd. And she's managing people that are 20 years plus older than her. And that's odd. And that's weird. But if you find a, a snowflake like that, who's uh, that type of person, you, you kind of have to roll with it. And yeah, it is a little different. It is a little weird to be managing people that are, you know, 20 years your senior and stuff like that. But if you find a super talented person, and in her case, I think she's one of the more talented people I've ever met, then you have to kind of grow with those people. Yeah. Um, so how do you identify the potential of someone um, on your team or when you hire someone? That I, I haven't figured out. Um, so I, I, if you really want to identify like the 10Xers, uh, mm-hmm. I don't know. Um, I have uh, never been able to, to predict a 10 Xer before working with them. Yeah. Uh, and um, now after working with someone um, for a while, you could know for sure mm-hmm. if they're a 10 Xer and everyone around them often can know very, very quickly whether yeah. they're a 10 Xer while interviewing them. I don't know. I'm sure there, mm-hmm. there may be a way to do it, but I haven't figured if someone figures that out, please email me or, you know, <laughs> hit me up on Twitter at Adorn or something like that. I would love to know, you know, the different secrets to figure out a 10 Xer before actually working with them. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So the experience of working together is how you decide whether you want to grow someone. Yeah. And by the way, people can change. So they could yeah. be a 10 Xer in a current role. You move them to a new role. Um, they're not, they could be a 10 Xer right now in their life. And then the other priorities happen in their life and, and work isn't as important to them. Uh, so, you know, there, there's lots of, you know, there are things you can meet someone who's not even good for your company 
you could you you could fire someone from your company. They could turn out to be a ten xer in another company because they're just mm-hmm. they're going to be better fit for that particular organization. So just because they're ten xer somewhere else does not mean they're ten xer with you. Just because they were terrible somewhere else does not mean that. Right. So you have all these different types of things that are very 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 difficult to predict. Yeah. And uh, what was the most difficult decision when you had to fire someone? Well, I think there's lots of different frameworks in firing. And if you think of fire, fire, you know, maybe if you think of there, there's probably um, like three axes. So there's like, let's say, um, so you have two to third or eight boxes that maybe someone, if you make really simplify it, could be, you know, um, and so you have one is like, are, are they producing, right? Yes or no. Are they producing? And then the second axis is, are they um, putting in like the effort essentially to produce? Yes or no. And you could have people in all the, all those different boxes. And then the third axis, I would say, is are they uh, a good person? Are they ethical? Are they the right cultural fit? Right? Yes or no? Yeah. Kind of like that type of thing, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and and so you could everyone could be in every different box that's out there. And of course, someone's not producing; they're not putting in the effort; they're not a good cultural fit; they're not they're not an ethical person. Okay, that's an easy fire, right? Yeah. Um, the 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 problem starts to be is when when they start to go into some of these other boxes that are out there. So let's say somebody is producing and, but not really putting in like the right effort to go do that. Okay. Well, you probably don't want to fire them. They're producing, they're good cultural fit. They're just not putting the effort. They're producing. You want to work with them. Okay. But now let's say six months later, they're still not putting in the effort. They're good cultural fit. They're a good ethical person, but now they're no longer producing. They were producing before, mm-hmm. you know, for let's say, let's say a salesperson or something, right? And now they're no longer producing. Okay, now what do you do? Okay, you, you have some history of them producing. So this is a tough, it's not like they've never produced. They've produced before, but they never really put in the right effort. They weren't actually doing the right things that are out there. Mm-hmm. Okay, so this is a tough decision. And then the opposite, they're putting in the effort. They're a cultural fit. They're, they're an ethical person. They're, 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 but they're, they're, not, they're not hitting, they're not producing. Yeah. What do you do, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, in, in that case, I would say a lot of times you should invest in that person more. Maybe you should move them to a slightly different job. Maybe you move them to a different manager. Maybe you change the role a bit or something like that. Right. So, but, but these are very, very, very difficult questions. And at a startup, you're just going to have a lower tolerance for people that aren't producing than at a larger company where you may have a, l- a little bit longer lead time to how to invest in those people, yeah. et cetera. Yeah. Thanks for sharing that. Um, and if you were to mentor someone, especially uh, someone who is a data scientist or engineer, what do you? What's your best advice for them? If you're going to mentor someone who's a data science or engineer, um, well, one of the things is I think in general, I don't think it's really just true for data science engineers. It's probably true for anyone. It's really trying to yeah. figure out your superpower and really trying to be great at a small number of things rather than be good at lots of things. Right. So, um, you know, I, I would try to be like the best of class in something rather than being like, okay, at a bunch of different types of things. Mm-hmm. And it's pretty easy to be the best at something. You just have to pick the right join. Um, and so, you know, let, let's say you, you care about, let's say you're a software engineer and you're really into sharks or something. Right. Mm-hmm. Okay. Well, um, maybe you are not the best person who knows the most about sharks and maybe you're not the best software engineer, but the combo of the two 
you're the you're the best software engineer who knows a lot about sharks. And then you could take all these different things about how sharks swim and how they communicate and how they attack different things and all the and you could use that in your software. And then you could take all your things about learning from software and you could use that for, you know, um different marine studies of sharks or something. And you could yeah. be the best at the at the overlap of those mm-hmm. two things. That's a relatively easy thing to become the best at, right? In some way, right? Yeah. Um, and so, so thinking about your, your things in that way, and then also, you know, it can change. So just because you're the best at something doesn't mean you. That's the only thing you're going to do for the rest of your life. You can slowly expand. You could find other things that you're interested in. You can move around a little bit, uh, etc. But there is a huge, huge rents. That go to being in you know the the top certainly the top hundred people and oftentimes the top ten people in mm-hmm. a given particular area. Yeah, what is your superpower? <laughs> it's very very hard to know. Um, uh, it's very very hard to to talk about yourself in those particular <laughs> ways. So I, I think I'm a little bit better about uh, generalizing, giving advice for others than to than to finding things in particular about myself. You may okay. have to ask my colleagues or my wife. Yeah. What do what do you guess? What do what do you think uh, they think about your superpower? Uh, I don't know. I'm gonna I'm gonna have to ask him and get back to you. I think it's <laughs> a okay. way of avoiding the question. <laughs> yeah. Um. That, that's okay. Um. So before we wrap up, what is the future of SafeGraph, or um, how does SafeGraph play into the future of data science? Well, having independent data companies is really important. And so, um, you know, you could you could see a world that exists where there's a very very small uh, number of companies that own all the data. Um, let's say twelve companies that own all the data. They have a monopoly on that data, and that's a world where you're just going to have a lot less innovation because you only have you know twelve companies really competing on to to innovate. And then you're going to see like most of the rents to that innovation accrue to those 12 companies. And that's a world that nobody wants to live in, including the people that work at those 12 companies, right? Literally nobody wants that world. Uh, or you could see a world where you're going to have these independent data companies. If, if data is the building block for innovation, then you really want to have truly independent data companies that will sell to anyone. They're not going to sign an exclusive, at SafeGraph, we'll never sign an exclusive deal. It's not like some insurance company can come to us and say, you can't. I'll, I'll pay you all this money, but you can't sell it to my competitors. We will never do a deal like that. Yeah, uh, we want to sell to everybody. We want to be open to everybody to come to us and um and and you know just like Wikipedia, anyone can go to Wikipedia and get get access to it. You can't you imagine a scenario where like you know they they wouldn't allow a certain uh, class of people or something like that to go to Wikipedia. You want to be able to have everyone have access to truth, and mm-hmm. then they can build on top of it. So having these kind of like core data. Um, infrastructure is really important. And I think for our society, for our society to really, really advance as a society, we need way more access to data than we have today. Data is way too closed on every single level. Um, and obviously, there are companies like SafeGraph that sell data. We need more companies like that that are going yeah. out there and manufacturing high-quality data. But there's lots of companies and organizations and governments that have access to data, and they need to get it out there. Uh, we need to have more data out there, and it needs to be more open so we can have every, you know, for instance, medical data. We should have, um, you know, there, there's this trope that we can't release medical data out there because um, it's very, very private and sensitive data, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and of course, if you did release the raw underlying data, this would be really problematic. I don't want to see people seeing my raw 
um, medical data that that's out there. But there is a way to protect privacy and to um, and to have access to data. You can have your cake and eat it too. There's lots of things we can do with differential privacy. We can do things. We can perturb the data. We can create synthetic data on top of data. We can allow data to just be queried in a certain way, et cetera. So people can ask deep questions of the data um, without having to necessarily see the underlying actual data that's out there. And that's a way we could massively make our, we could have people live longer. People could live healthier. People could be happier. We could spend less money on, on it. If you can imagine all these different types of things that we could be doing if we just opened up data a bit more. And right. I, I think it's a, it's a, uh, a human right to have more access to data. It's one of the most important things that we could be working on as a society. If this data was open, we would massively increase innovation and massively increase happiness and general welfare in our, in, in our world. Uh, Safegraph is doing one small little piece of it, but I would love to see every company, every organization, every government really focus on getting data out there more. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's a, a very exciting future. And now with uh, the rise of uh, decentralized applications, do you think there's going to be a decentralized uh, DAS company or do you think part of the data set can be beneficial if it's running on the decentralized platform? I do. Yeah. Um, I, th- I think we'll see a lot of those types of things. I think they're really exciting. One of the nice things about having some sort of decentralized ledger um, th- that that's out there is that anyone can get access to it, mm-hmm. um, and that it's uh, uh, and and that it goes back for a really w- long period of time. You know, you can see the Bitcoin transactions, for instance, since the start of Bitcoin. Every single yeah. transaction that happened, every single thing that happened, it's available to anybody. Some, you know, maybe it's cleaner, and you you, you might want to pay for the data because it's better mm-hmm. or cleaner or something like that. But it's definitely it doesn't data doesn't have to be free. Having open data does not mean data has to be free. Obviously, Safegraph is a data company. We sell data, and there's companies that sell, um, you know, uh, data about public ledgers and stuff like that. The data doesn't have to be free. It just has to be available at a fair price, right? Um, if you if you charge a gazillion dollars for data, it's not really available, um, and so it needs to be available at a reasonable price that's out there. But you can, you, you, it's okay for people to charge for something so that they can continue to make it better, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and having this decentralized data doesn't mean it has to be free. The data out there is free, um, it, but but what it is exciting that it, that it's out there and it's all. I mean, do, like understanding some sort of chain um, transactions going back um, now, like uh, uh, tw- ten years or so for Bitcoin, mm-hmm. is really really interesting and really exciting. Yeah, yeah, I agree with you. I think there's going to be a lot of decentralized. Uh, data provider, and there definitely are use cases for it. But also, I don't believe everything needs to be decentralized. So what is the benefit of uh, having a central uh, data provider, uh, having certain governance? Yeah, well, decentralization has benefits and it has drawbacks, right? And so does centralization. And so in certain applications, it's better to be a little bit more centralized. In certain applications, it might be better to be decentralized. Decentralized is slower and much more expensive. Mm-hmm. Right. Um, and so, um, and so it, it, uh, that is a huge drawback. Um, it's, it just takes way, way more expense to go do it in terms of compute power, in terms of, you know, whatever it might be. And just things are just going to move at a much, much slower rate because it's, because it's decentralized. At the same time, it's way more, uh, it may be way more trustworthy. 
because it's decentralized. Um, it, it's way more easier to, you know, there, there may be more incentives to get it going. You can give everyone a coin or something like that. Right. Um, and so you can give some, so you, you might be able to get adoption faster. So there's lots of pluses and minuses of centralization versus decentralization. And I think every different use case is different and, and, and you could have multiple competing use cases in a in particular, uh, particular type of way. So I think it's okay for lots of different, I don't think, you know, it's like always a nail and a hammer. Um, I think it's okay to, to have many different things, but for sure, we're going to see a lot of very successful centralized systems. And we're for sure, we're going to see a lot of successful decentralized systems. And a lot of things are going to be more hybrid where they're going to be centralized mm-hmm. in some areas, decentralized. And so even, even a lot of the most, you know, a lot of the crypto projects there can be pr- pretty centralized in certain areas, right? There might be like six miners or something. That's pretty centralized and pretty concentrated, even though it's like quote unquote decentralized. Um, there's like six companies do, you know, 60% of the mining or something, right? So you can always have these different types of things. And I think there's pluses and minuses for all of it. Yeah. Um, and what is something you're excited about in your career or in your life? Uh, well, look, I'm, I'm very, very, I'm very, very excited for the future of data. Uh, and, um, I, I think we, we are just at the cusp of really starting to understand like secrets of humanity. Mm-hmm. We're understanding like, what is love? What is, uh, family? Why yeah. do we do things that we do? How do we live much, much longer? How do we be happier? How do we have better society? How do we govern ourselves better? Um, all of these things uh, are things that we can learn from data. We can learn from things in the past. We can learn from facts and we can extrapolate. And so part of the hard part is getting these facts in one place, being able to um, uh, govern the usage of those facts, being able to really kind of analyze that. And we are, we are at maybe 1% of where we will be. Uh, but I mean, very, very bullish to see where that goes over the next couple of decades. It is going to be awesome once it happens in the right way. We're going to have some fits and starts and there will be some problems, uh, but we have an ability to really, really, really make the future much better than the past. Yeah. Um, so for people who want to find you online or learn more from you, where can they uh, find you? I'm a prolific tweeter, so you can come follow me at Oren, A-U-R-E-N on, on Twitter. Uh, that will link to you know, my blog and Substack, and uh, obviously you can go to safegraph.com. But Twitter is the first place. I love Twitter. I probably love it way more than I should. I probably spend way more time on there than I should. So uh, please come uh, follow me. Ask me quite, if you ask me something on Twitter, I will respond. Mm-hmm. And uh, you also host a podcast. Do you want to share a little about yeah, that? Yeah, absolutely. So for people who are like data nerds, data scientists, they care about data and data businesses. Uh, I host a podcast called World of Das, D-A-A-S, uh, and where we try to really dive into very, very, very specific types of data businesses, and we dissect those businesses, or we talk about different academic research or other types of research that are dealing with core data. Mm-hmm. Yeah, thanks for sharing that. Um, thank you so much, Aaron, for coming to the show, and I'm very excited to see more uh, data sets published by SafeGraph. Oh, thank you. Well, I'm really excited to be here. It's really fun. 
Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed the show, consider rating this podcast and leaving a review. For more World of DAS, and DAS is D-A-A-S, you can subscribe on Spotify or Apple Podcasts or anywhere you get your podcasts. And also check out YouTube for videos. You can find me at Twitter at at Oren, that's A-U-R-E-N, Oren, and we'd love to hear from you.